Hello and welcome to British Sitcom History Podcast. You are listening to part two of our look at Chance in a Million, a slightly obscure 80s sitcom starring Simon Callow. We've already talked about Callow, though. We've dealt with his sort of biography and some of the other actors. This week, we're going to be getting into Brenda Blethyn and the writers, and we're going to look into a bit more detail of the episode specific that we are looking at, which is Series 2, Episode 2, For Whom the Bell Tolls, for those who like to watch along. And that's where we're going back into it. We're getting into that episode now. We're still only in the opening scene. Let's get back to it. Well, let's go back to Angus's character, um, Mr. Wingen. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, he's arrived and blah, 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 wedding arrangements. And You know what? You, you, you just sort of say blah, 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 but that's the problem, isn't it? There's a whole yeah. sort of scene here yeah. that you can sum up with blah, blah, blah. It doesn't... Yeah. And it's not funny enough in itself to be blah, blah, blah. Exactly. We need it to be plot relevant or funny, preferably both. Yeah, and it's neither. <laughs> So this is really interesting, Alan, because you said earlier where the carjack goes nowhere. This is another thing that goes nowhere. So he's left yeah. his notebook behind, and there's a little joke where she reads... Basically, it's his little black book, and it's his conquest, mm. and he's rated someone five stars. Brenda Blethyn's too oblivious. She didn't realise this. And I think, well, that's going to show up later. That's going to embarrass him at the wedding or something. No, yeah. no, it's never mentioned again. All these weird things that get set up and then never pay yeah. off. It's really weird. In a show that where everything should pay off, because that's the whole conceit. Because it's coincidence. Yeah. And there's a whole bit, basically, where Tom had organised a stag do, and it was a debauched night, and Mr. Winget left at half nine, because because he's oh, God, a browbeaten yeah. old man who, you know, his wife said he wasn't allowed to go out or whatever. Oh, God. Yeah, that's right. But also, he's a womaniser. I don't know. No, none of it really makes any sense. So, Mr. Wingent goes. Now, we have set up wedding number one, Mr. Wingent and Barbara. That is our wedding. That is our yes. character's wedding that we're all attending. The moment he's gone, there's another knock on the door. It's a bride. Yes. Oh, but not our bride, not Barbara. It's another bride. What a coincidence. So basically, the setup here is, this is a woman who is on her way to her wedding day on a horse-drawn carriage with her dad, who's drunk, and therefore doesn't have yeah. to speak, so you don't have to pay him much. <laughs> it's the horse-drawn carriage, and the problem is that the horse has fainted? Well, they think it's dead, and then it's so fine. By the time by we the get time outside, the horse is fine. Well, actually, what she says, what she says, I think it must have been heat stroke, but you can literally see the breath of the actors because yeah. it's obviously <laughs> yeah, yeah. so cold. <laughs> Such a bleak day out there. Like it's just stopped raining enough to, long enough to film. <laughs> but in the mean, in the intervening period between the horse being dead and being absolutely fine, Thomas called his friend the vet. He just happens to know a vet oh, yeah, by yeah. on first name terms. Yeah, yeah, you know. Whatever. So the vet turns up. I'm gonna. I'm. I'm really gonna jump through this, Alan, because it's excruciating. The vet turns mm. up. It turns out to be the lost, long lost love of this bride. They kiss. The wedding's off. That's. I, I've mercifully cut that short. Yeah. Look, the thing is, it's not funny. It's slow paced. It, it's, oh god, it's it slow. doesn't like whip along. When she stood at the door and she's explaining what's happened, she's just explaining what happened. It's not funny. The dad's drunk, but that's not really funny either. Like you can't get laughs out of a knockabout drunk. I don't. What's the point of any of it? The point of it, the plot point of it is that uh, th this is all contrived so that the, the bride and the vet ask Tom to go to the mm. church to tell her once uh, her erstwhile groom that the wedding's off 
And mm. so Tom goes to the... The next scene is Tom goes to the church and he tells the wrong wedding that it's off. We'll get to that. Oh, you're, we'll get you're to kidding that. me. In the meantime, the horse bolts, suddenly recovered. The drunk dad's champagne falls on the road, broken glass. Mr. Wingent comes back, gets a flat tyre, looks at the tyre, drops the wedding ring down the drain, puts his hand down the drain, gets his hand stuck. Fire brigade arrive, cut him out. Mr. Wingent's got the drain stuck on his hand. Oh. Now, if we if we go down the line of, oh, Tom Chanter's life is played with coincidence and that's how all this thing... None of this has anything to do with him. No, it's just like a cloud of... Uh, it's just a, a, a cloud of chaos that sort of swirls around him, but he's in the eye of it. Yeah, I guess that's the idea. But like we were saying earlier, this the sitcom setup where everything goes wrong, there's yeah. so many ways to do that. Yeah, though, the groom has like, accidentally got trapped in the drain and has been taken to the hospital. Now the groom doesn't turn up. That's all we need. We don't need it to all connect in, in a kind of weird way. So so, I, yeah, I, so I, I mentioned earlier, now Tom has gone to the church and he's told the groom that the bride's not coming, wedding's off. Oh my God, disaster. The groom's really upset, goes, decides to go and get drunk. But it's the wrong groom. He's told the wrong groom. So now that groom has left the church. His bride turns up. She's really unhappy because he's decided to leave and everybody's disappointed. Three weddings mm. going on. Mr. Wingent's disappeared with his hand in a drain. So Barbara's not getting married either. Basically, nobody gets married today. Here's a, a detail that annoyed me as well. Mr. Wingent gets his hand stuck down the drain and he goes, help. Cut to fire engine rolls up. He's still there on his own. No one else has come out. Uh-huh. Where did they come from? Coincidence, I guess. They just happen to be driving past. Yeah, there's a, there's a big fire down the road. <laughs> it's just crap. <laughs> it's just crap. So the next scene now, we're, we're at the hotel, which is where the reception was supposed to be. This is a whole new set that's just used this once for the Regency Hotel. I think it's a nice job. They've got, we've got the is big open the same, lobby. We've is it got not the, the same set that we had for their blind date in the first episode? It feels like the same hotel. It might be the same basic structure. It's probably the same basic structure as the library, which is also quite yeah. a big space that they use regularly. Yeah. But the walls will be the same or whatever. But, I mean, you know, they've made it up. I think you get a real sense that this is a lobby. There's a bar on one side yes, and there's is, a yeah. function room on the other. And the function room has a really high ceiling kind of feel to it, which I, okay. I appreciated as a set dressing thing. I think in general set design is one of the good things about Yeah, the well, show. I already talked earlier about his house. I, I kind of like the... The production design of his house. Yeah. So that's something. Come, I, I want to mention John Savident now, because here's another interesting thing. All right, so yeah. We've got, we've got Barbara and Mr. Winger, we've discussed them. We've now got the groom who Tom has mistakenly told the wedding was off. He's getting drunk in the bar. We've got the bride. Oh, I didn't mention. She's six months pregnant. She turns up, they get together, and then they have an argument. And then we've got the other wedding. So you'll remember it's the woman with the horse who's run off with the vet. And her groom, who we never see. Instead, as a proxy for that groom, we have his dad, uncle, relative, John Savident and friend. John Savident is the dad, because he says, she's supposed to be marrying my son. The other guy, we're not quite clear clear. what what he is. But John Savident's a brute. He's angry, and he wants a fight. Then, uh, I might be getting this in the wrong order. But basically... (laughs) The the horsewoman with the vet, they turn up, she's passed out. Heat stroke, is it? I, I don't remember. No, there was there was no because you'll see, they were driving to the airport to run away together, but they had to swerve to avoid a runaway horse and cart. And so they crashed. Her horse and cart. Well, we maybe it's just a coincidence. Go, just I don't know. But so <laughs> just 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 let me just say for our listeners, if if you're not following this, good. 
Because that, that is a perfect <laughs> summation of this bloody episode. So anyway, Vet and woman turn up. Vet needs to go make a phone call. So he's hands up. Oh, Mr. Wingent's just arrived. So he says, will you just hold my passed out wife for me? So it throws her onto Mr. Wingent. So he's holding this passed out woman up. Now John Savident comes out and says, what are you doing with my daughter? And he goes, well, there's nothing to do with me. He drops her. And what, when he drops her to the ground, Alan, what do we notice about the bride? All her clothes fall off. All her clothes <laughs> fall off. So she's just there in her underwear. And I've seen everything. In her 1980s lingerie. <laughs> and so John Savident's furious about this. How dare you, you know. And much confusion and a fight breaks out. Basically, there's just chaos. All the weddings are all fighting each other. Off stage. Off stage. Oh, yeah, off stage. They just go behind a little wall to fight because otherwise it would be can I, too difficult can to Can I point out one thing that I really loved? And I'm going to have to describe this because it was very visual. So basically, John Savident looks off stage and, and basically adopts a fighting stance as if to say, I'm going to come and punch your lights out. But what I loved about it was, if I asked you to sort of adopt a fighting stance, what you're going to do is you're going to put your fists up in front of your face, you know, like a boxer, right, yeah. as if you're going to just, uh, you know, you're, you're going into the ring. What John Savident does, is he puts his left hand up in front of his face like that, and his right hand is down by his <laughs> hip, by his waist. <laughs> Like a Victorian bare knuckle fighter. That is an actor's choice, and it was magnificent. That is the best thing I saw in three series of Chance in a Million. It was this beautifully idiosyncratic fighting stance from John Savident, and I loved it. And I would like to, in fact, I'm going to write to him and tell him how good that was. Is he dead? No. Okay. 85 and still alive. Right. I'm going to email him. Hey, do you know what? Actually, you bring that up. If uh, John Savant is 85 now, how old was he when this was filmed? Therefore, 45. Oh. He would have about, about 47 when this Are you was saying he was younger Savant. than me? <laughs> oh, my God. That old man in that show. <laughs> oh, my God. It's the baldness it will get you. We've knocked through quite a few actors there. Let me just give you a little yeah, bit of... So, uh, uh, well, listen, before we do that, I, I have galloped through that scene, and it was kind of, like I said, if you didn't follow it, that's fine, because it was just... Blah, blah, blah. Nonsense, nonsense, nonsense. Big fight. But yes, lots of people coming and going. So tell me about some of those uh, some of those actors. Should we start with John Savident? John Savident, yeah. We, we, we've we seen John Savident before in the uh, mm. the unaired pilot of Blackadder, of course. Yeah, of course. And I, I've, recently, uh, I've recently been watching Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister, and he, he appears in that a couple of times as well. He does, yeah. Um, not like, that's it really, sitcom-wise. He's not a big sitcom guy, particularly. He was in Coronation Street, wasn't he? That's that's outside our remit, but I, that's what... He's certainly done a lot of things as, outside of that as well, you know. Yeah, one of those people who just was around for years and years and years. Uh, his little sort of comedy duo partner there is Hubert Reese. Yeah, I didn't recognise him. I recognise him very specifically, and I couldn't quite place it, but I know him from one episode of The New Statesman, in which he plays a Welsh MP who is caught up in a sex scandal. That rings a bell. So the fir- our first couple, the horse lady and the, the vet, that's Judy Maynard and Michael Petrovich. Mm. Judy Maynard, she was in she had a pretty big role in one of the episodes of Up the Elephant, uh, okay. around the castle so I did recognise from that but she's not like she's done loads of stuff otherwise uh, yeah Michael Petrovich not really much sitcom wise he was a bore according to Angus Mackay <laughs> um, <laughs> the young couple we have Philip Bird I recognised him I thought it was Reese Dinsdale at first and I quickly realised it wasn't Reese Dinsdale but wh- where do I know Philip Bird from that's a good question because I thought that myself I was like I recognise him back in the 80s he did quite a lot he was in um, 
He was in Tripper's Day slash Slinger's Day. Oh, and yeah. They changed the, the cast there. He was in Fresh Fields for, uh, as a sort that of semi-regular. I watched Fresh Fields. And French Fields. Yeah, and then, I mean, recently... I was just looking at sitcom stuff. He did an episode of Kate and Koji, actually, with Brenda Blethyn. Uh-huh. He's one of those people who I recognize, but then I couldn't specifically place him in anything. But he's just one of those faces, I guess. The the bride of that I definitely recognized her. We've seen her in something recently. Where do I know her from? She's called Rebecca Lacey. She was in an episode of Game On. Game On. Playing one of Mandy's friends. Of. I, I knew that I recognized her from something. Yeah. Loads of sitcom appearances. You know, she she was a regular in May to December. Do you remember that? I do. Oh yes, she was the yes, she was the dizzy secretary. There you yes, go. That's, yeah, that's, there you that's go. Where I'm from. That was her. That's her only kind of regular every episode kind of role. Other one, loads of little odd sitcom mm-hmm. appearances. She seems to get around. She's very young here. She's about twenty twenty one. Ronald Lacey's daughter. The, the name uh, may have given that away. Yes. Rebecca Lacey. Okay. But nice, nice little supporting cast. Most of them. Oh, and then the, the the only other actor that we see here as a main part that we haven't really talked about is Geraldine Gardner, uh, who plays Barbara in several episodes. Oh yeah, of course we've we've mentioned her, but yeah, we haven't really talked about her. Go on. Yeah, obviously, um, as Angus McKay alluded to, she's got very she's got principal long legs. boyish. She was very <laughs> principal boy. She was a she was primarily an act, a musical theatre. So Peter she Pan. did the singing, the singing, the dancing. Yeah. Well, she she apparently she originally worked under the name Trudy Van Dorn. Oh which yeah, is a bit more bit more glamorous in it that definitely has a different feel to it doesn't yeah. it but she was she was never like if you look at her imdb the tv and film credits is pretty crappy stuff uh and mostly there just to kind of be the leggy leggy lady but she was a bit more successful on the on the musical theater stage she was she was one of the original uh, cast of cats oh dear which was a big show whether you well, like it yeah, or not I, yeah obviously was, <laughs> but um no i mean that was that was huge wasn't it that would have been a big yeah a big thing well, okay, so let me pull back to the episode. So, yeah, all this carnage is going on. It's very, oh, Vicar, where's my trousers? And, you know, we've talked about <laughs> farce before, and this is very farcical episode. And It's, it's not a, even, the, the thing is, good farce, clever. though. It's all about timing, about yeah, things coming yeah. together. This is just chaos. Yeah. This is like crap farce. And we sort of see um, Alison, Brenda Blethyn's character, Alison is... He's kind of watching this all unfold. And you, you can sort of see her joining the dots, figuring out the whole thing. And she goes and sits with, with Tom in the not-wedding reception. Oh, and there's a whole thing about dancing. He, he offers to, to dance. Yeah. And she says, oh, are you a good dancer, Tom? I'm rather. <laughs> Tells a story about how uh, he once got trapped with some dancing team. I don't know. That's it. You can explain anything by just going, oh, yeah, I've got a weird life. So yeah. weird things happen. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but then... then he proposes to her. It's the least romantic thing you've ever seen. Out of nowhere. Wonder if we might consider it. Consider what? Getting married. Who to? Us. <laughs> Us? Yeah, realise the idea may not appeal at once. Give you a little time to think it over. So, you know, she's, she's completely made up with this, but it's just like a transaction to him. Oh, yeah, 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 like, a, like I'll pay yeah, for dinner. He d- he- he doesn't seem to understand the consequences of it, is he? He seems sort of oblivious this is, to I, I'm looking at my notes as we speak, and this is where I wrote, is he supposed to be autistic? No, I think you're onto something with that, though. I don't know if it's... I, it's but I think you're probably right. In 1984, that would not have been a conscious choice. It would more have been, a, like you say, based on people they knew. They, they dance, and the episode is complete. They da- They actually, they dance and Simon Callow picks her up and starts spinning around with her in, the, yeah, in a, a, a feat of strength. It looks very uncomfortable. Yeah, it looks fun. Exciting. I'd like to be picked up by Simon Callow. 
So that is our episode. Oh, I've got another note here, which is something we did talk about before. When Rebecca Lacey is talking about the reason she was late to the church, she says it's because she got delayed behind the boilers for the QE2, which yes. seemed like a really odd thing to say. And you picked up on that, didn't you? Well, I picked. I didn't pick up on it that much there, but there's another episode where they mention it again, and it's just, again, a throwaway line. The wall fell down because the truck was carrying the boilers for the QE2 backed into it. Like, just some reference to the QE2 boilers, the new boilers for the QE2. And I thought, is this is this some ma- massive topical thing that would work, knowing they were filming six months ahead, it would still definitely You work. asked me to look into this, and, and I thought, oh, this is great. This will be a little bit of topical colour, which will, which will add detail and texture to our episode. And so I sort of started Googling and started researching. I started asking old people, and nothing. Nothing. Couldn't find anything about it. But I still think it's worth us talking about because <laughs> it clearly was a topical reference. They wouldn't have put it in twice yeah. if it wasn't a thing. So there must have been a news story about the QE2 boilers causing carnage and slowing traffic down and knocking walls down. Whatever. Whatever it is. And it has not survived into the internet age. Incidentally, if any of our listeners can shed any light on it, I'd love to know. But the reason I'm still talking about it, even though I've got nothing to tell you, is it really shows the risk for a sitcom of, of, of being topical. Yeah, but I mean, even that seems like a very specific, if that was a news story, oh, they've got these huge boilers, they've got them on massive trucks, and so it's a big thing. Is that going to play three months later? Yeah. <laughs> Never mind 30 years. And it got a laugh, so, you know. Indeed, made, which, which makes you think, well, it must be, it, you know, it must be relatable content. It was. It just seemed an odd thing, because it's not something they do particularly in this show, like drop in those topical references. So look, that's our episode. What we haven't really talked about is Brenda Blethyn. We, we did a lot on Simon Callow mm. at the start. Tell me more about Brenda Blethyn. Oh, yeah. Brenda Blethyn, one of the highlights of the show. I would agree with that. Uh, Brenda Blethyn, she was um, sort of a slightly more unusual route to the acting world. I guess she came to it slightly later in life. She's the youngest of nine children, first of all. <laughs> Catholic. Wow. Pretty typical working class kind of life. Got married at 18. She was working as a bookkeeper. And it was after that first marriage fell apart when she was in her late 20s. I'm reading between the lines here, but, you know, probably was doing a bit of a, oh, what am I really doing with my life kind of uh-huh. vibe. And she turned to acting. She did amateur dramatics, but basically went, right, I'm going to start doing that more seriously. Ended up going to drama school. So about sort of 10 years later than most people would be doing that. But joined the Royal National and just started building a reputation and very quickly did so. Her first TV appearance was a play, a a teleplay directed by Mike Lee. Okay. Uh, so that was 1980, and obviously that relationship carried on because probably her what she's most famous for is Secrets and Lies. Secrets and Lies. Was she nominated for an Oscar for that? She was indeed. Mm. So that was 1996. That film came out, and that was a bit of a gateway to different things. So, so in the 80s, she was. I noted she was in an episode of Yes Minister. I don't know if you picked up she on that. She was. Yes. And she she does often play kind of little dowdy characters and so okay when she breaks out of that mm, it sort of makes yeah. an impact but she she always seems to commit to the role and, and get very involved makes sense working with someone like mike lee where it's all very improvised and you have to yeah. really lose yourself in the character and all that but yeah secrets and lies in 96 really kind of brought her to a different audience because that was such a breakout hit and kind of went over mm. in america and all that mm. and the oscar nomination two years later she did little voice which she was also oscar nominated for with jane horrocks uh, and then, you know, just all sorts of stuff since then. But in terms of sitcom, after this, yeah. she did, in 1989, she did a two-series show called The Labours of Erica. I don't even remember that. Yeah. Well, it's written by the same guys, Andrew Norris and Richard Fegan, who wrote mm-hmm. Chance in a Million. I'll talk about them in a minute. Mm-hmm. But it's about this 40-year-old woman 
her partner's died, her, her child has kind of grown up, doesn't need her, and all this, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, well, all right, what am I doing with my life? And she finds her a diary from when she's 14, and it has this list of 12 things that she wanted to do, like a bucket list. And so she was like, right, I'm going to do these things that my 14-year-old self wanted to do to sort of... Yeah. And so that's it. They did one per episode, 12 episodes, that's job done. a nice done. premise. I like it. It is a nice premise, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But like, it's not exactly well-remembered, is it? <laughs> no. Have you seen any of it? Is it any good? I watched the first episode because it's on YouTube, uh, and I managed to find that. It is out on DVD, though. I'm going to try and find it. It it was better than Chance in a Million. Well, okay. I mean, <laughs> Root Canal would be better than that. <laughs> in the mid-90s, she was in another sitcom called Outside Edge. Oh, yes. I remember that. Yeah. I, I didn't watch that. I, I sort of remember that being on being a bit a bit sort of mainstream and lame for me at that at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Did that for a couple of years right before uh, Secrets and Lies. And then after Secrets and Lies, she very much becomes much more of a film actor mm-hmm. or kind of the sort of person who's not going to commit to like a full sitcom filming schedule. So maybe the odd guest appearance here and there, but was a bit more in demand, I think. And she knows, I know we, we talked about Kate and Koji recently, haven't we? Yeah, until very recently, sort of 2020. Isn't she, um, I know this is not a sitcom, but isn't she a sort of not Miss Marple female detective? Yes, Vera. Vera, that's it, yeah. Yeah, that's the other main thing she's been doing for the last 10 years, basically. But yeah, I mean, those two things are very much a kind of retirement jobs. You want a nice regular gig? Bit rude. You're the star. <laughs> it's not really retirement, She's 70, she's, she's I'm saying she's, got, she's, got, she's <laughs> starring in two series there. That's not, that's not retirement. I guess my, my point is that there's a sort of a 20 year gap here where she was doing films. I see what you mean. And like, now you want something where you can, you can commute from home. You don't yes. have to, you know, the, the, you know exactly what your schedule is going to be every day. Yeah. There's a few other actors, little guest stars. That well, nice I've written down, mention. yeah. I've written down a few names here that I think are probably worth talking about. The first one was someone who's in quite a few episodes. Bill Pertwee plays the local police sergeant. Yeah. And obviously yeah. Tom, because he's plagued by coincidence, he's quite often getting arrested. And Bill Pertwee's mm. character is, basically his role is to apologise to Tom and say, I'm really sorry about the mix-up. Off you go. Yeah. It was in one of the very early episodes, and I think they must have liked the character, so they kept bringing him back. Yeah, he's literally in the pilot episode. Mm. It's, it's kind of there to help establish Chance's character that, you mm. know, it's like... Even the police know him and they're like, oh, he's the old hand policeman going, all right, young lad, this young policeman, you're arresting him. We all know not to arrest him. But yeah, they do. They bring it back several yeah. times, right up to the end where they, he helps them sort of get married at the end. Bill Pertwee, just doing his usual Bill Pertwee thing, not really exactly stepping out of his comfort zone here. Uh, anyone else? So a couple more that I think are really worth not talking about. A chap called Brian Godfrey. Now, our listeners might not remember the name. <laughs> but they will remember us talking about in Up the Elephant Around the Castle, there's a scene in the pub where there's a, a, a camp barman and it's the <laughs> worst comic timing I've ever seen. In <laughs> and that was Brian Godfrey. Yes. And I remember when we talked about it, you said, you know, he'd be in quite a few things and he can't be bad because, you know, this one like the only thing he did. It must have been bad editing or whatever. And I think you're probably right because I'm not going to say he's brilliant in this, but he's passable. He's perfectly yeah. fine in this. He plays yeah, a character yeah, yeah. who deliberately picks a fight with Tom. I won't bore you with the details. But, you know, he's just in, he's just in one scene in the pub. Mm. But after Tom... Very violent man, Tom Chance. After Tom's knocked him out, he does some great unconscious acting. You know, where he has to sort of <laughs> flop on a stool. And even though he's unconscious, he can still sort of move his arms around a little bit. <laughs> Did you notice in that same episode, the person who plays the barman, the more older gentleman behind the bar, is Tommy Godfrey, who is Brian Godfrey's uncle. Uh, he's The thing I remember him being in is Mind Your Language. He's like the janitor or something. But he's like okay. a... 
he's sort of a gruff, uh, you know, East End okay. Cockney kind of old fella. Um, but yeah, he's Brian Godfrey's uncle, I think. So one more, one more name that really caught my eye, and it was the name rather than the performance when I was looking through the cast list. It's an episode where Tom and Alison's friend leaves his wife for another woman, and the other woman is played by an actress called Mandy Rice Davis. Mandy Rice Davis was the other woman, not Christine Keeler, involved in the Profumo scandal. All right. Now, I thought, well, that right, can't okay. be a coincidence. Because she looked about the right age. So I, I googled Mandy Rice Davis, and there's all the photos of her in 1963. Compare, I'm, I'm comparing like for like with this YouTube link of 1983, near enough. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure it's her. On IMDb, she's done a few little things. But I think there was probably some, some renaissance, you know, there was a film, wasn't there, about it. And, you know, maybe she decided, right, well, I'm going to get out there and act. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd really love to, I'd love to have it confirmed, but I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah, I don't see why not. Everyone has a little crack at the acting, doesn't it? Well, well, as it, as it happens, she wasn't very good. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but, but I don't think that's, uh, you know, she certainly was uh, not out of character in that. I've got a couple other names for you. I've got, yeah, go on then. Uh, Deddy Davis. Deddy Davis plays Alison's mum, and we've seen her before. What have we seen her in? You'd absolutely recognise her face. What, what have we seen her in? She was in the LWT remake of The Rag Trade, oh, playing good. the role of the skittish mousy one. That's right, yeah, yeah. And she plays a skittish <laughs> mousy mum, doesn't she? In this? Exactly, yeah. She well, just a couple of others. Richard Vernon appears in Series 3, which uh, he's an old favourite oh, of yes, from Rollover yes. Beethoven and Yes Prime Minister. Ricky Howard is in the final episode. Uh, Ricky Howard is one of the yellow coats in Heidi High. She is in the final episode yes. as a tart. She is literally <laughs> i tell you what we should do. We've talked about, we've talked about all the other cast there. We, you, let's talk about the writers. Tell me about the writers. Yeah, we haven't got into the details yet. I sort of wanted to save that. Uh, it's Andrew Norris and Richard Feagan. And I know the names for one reason. Because they wrote The British Empire. Ah, right. Yes. Okay. That's the one thing that they're really like. That was their one big hit. Obviously, after this. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that. And I hadn't looked into the details much more than that. I knew they'd done that. And then they were better known for kids' shows. Which makes perfect sense to me. Because, spoiler alert for a future episode, The British Empire is kind of crap and childish, in my opinion. <laughs> it went on for ages, the British, the British Empire. It was a huge success. It went on success. a lot longer than you think. It was massive, yeah. But then I actually looked into them and read about them, and I found out a bit more than I expected. Richard Feagan's not a lot about him out there in an, in an obviously accessible way, but Andrew Norris has his own website, and he's put a lot of information up there, so it's got found out a bit more. There's a few episodes on the DVD of Chance and Million where they do a commentary with Simon Callow. They don't give away much in terms of their process and all that. They're just sort of chatting about the old days, but there's some little bits of information. I've pieced some things together. One slight problem, I couldn't tell which was which on the commentary. They said, oh, I'm Andrew Norris, I'm Richard Fegan, but the name, the, the voices were too similar. I couldn't distinguish who was who, so, so who knows? <laughs> they were born around the same time, as far as I could tell. Their birth date's both 1947, which means they would have been sort of in their mid-30s when this show came around. Now, Andrew Norris, a bit more bio about him. He trained as a teacher and was still teaching. He was taught history right into the 80s. And he said, this is on his website, and it's one of those things that I was like, is that a joke? Could be a joke. I don't know if it's a joke. He said when he was 35, he went to a hypnotist to help him stop smoking. And during the process, she said, what do you want to do with your life? And he said, be a writer. So under this sort of hypnotic state, the, in, in hypno veritas, it, the truth came out and he was like, oh, I should be a writer. 
And so he started writing in earnest alongside his teaching job. Is that a joke? I can't tell. I honestly don't know. I don't know. Based on did, his sitcom well, writing. I, what I want be. to know is, is the phrase in hypno veritas yours or his? <laughs> oh, that was mine. That was mine. That was good. Very good, man. Very good. <laughs> but fair enough. He decided to want to be a writer. And he said, chance in a million the first thing he ever wrote that he was paid for. And it made okay. me feel kind of nice inside about it. He was like, oh, this is nice. And he was still working as a history teacher in 1985. He didn't quit his job until after the series was kind of like, okay, yeah, we're going to give you a second wow. series. So he was not an established writer by any means, but he just had this great concept, this gimmick, and he obviously got it to the right person. And he also said, there was just this odd little reference. It said, after two episodes, I was able to connect with my good friend, Richard Feagan, and we wrote the rest and we wrote it together. So I think, I'm putting things together here, but I think Andrew Norris wrote a script, spec script, sent it off. They said, yeah. we like it, write us another one. We want to see what it's like. Wrote a second one. And then at some point they've kind of gone, okay, yeah, we want you to write it, but let's put you with someone else just to kind of make it all work together. But Richard Feagan doesn't have any credits before this either. And they carried on writing together okay. for the next... 15 years so were they friends before that and he brought his friend in to help because he needed the help or Mm. were they put together by the industry people i'm not quite sure they don't he doesn't talk about them having a friendship prior but they're obviously friends anyway that's the best i can do with that interesting uh but they wrote together quite a bit their early sitcoms were all with thames tv uh obviously this one was for channel 4 but the others were for itv so what else did they do after this Straight after this, 1987 to 1989, they did a sitcom called Fizz with two Fs. No, Does that mean anything to you? Oh, um, two Fs. No, no, still don't. Fizz. It, uh, Richard Griffiths and Benjamin Whitrow as this sort of pair of upper class kind of tough guys who run a wine business, but then all of a sudden the, the inciting isn't is they actually have to run it and, and work for a living and they're a little bit like, oh. Okay. I haven't seen that, so I couldn't really um, uh, make a direct connection, but as I was uh, heard uh, the writers talking about it, the John Savident Hubert Reese characters in this episode that we've yes. just looked at, they were basically the prototype for that. They liked writing those characters so ah. much that they put them in another episode later on. But then the characters that are in Fizz are basically those two. It's these two characters that are just finish each other's sentences okay. and just kind of slightly uh, posh and just don't know what they're doing. Uh-huh. So a very direct connection there to Chance in a Million. Straight after that, they did The Labours of Erica with Brenda Blethyn, as we've already talked yep. about. And then the year after that, 1991, so the next job, British Empire, okay. uh, which ran for six years. And that is basically their sitcom life. You said they went into children's television after that? Yes. Yeah, so they wrote things together. Andrew Norris wrote books, uh, children's books, and then they did sort of uh, TV adaptations of them. Uh, the probably the most famous one. It might mean nothing to you because you're a bit old. It's a bit after my time even. But Bernard's Watch was quite a famous show oh, no, in no, the nineties. I remember a that, little yeah. boy who can stop time with a watch and has adventures mm-hmm. with that. That's their work. I think it was Andrew Norris's kind of original, and then but Richard Feigen wrote a lot of it. This one meant a lot to me. This was one that like was like whoa. I remember that from my childhood. It was a apparently it was a book first, but I knew it as a TV show called Aquila. Aquila. And it's about these two boys who are like 12 or whatever, and they discover uh, an alien spaceship and they go off and have adventures. By God, I remembered that. That was, that was like, oh my God, That's I'm 11 years old and I watched that. That, that took me right back. That was, um, that was Andrew Norris. Wrote that. Okay. And yeah, and he writes kids' books. They wrote Woof. That was a TV show about a dog. <laughs> they wrote a lot about that. Richard Feagan seems to write kids' stuff, but like proper little kids' stuff. 
you know the sort of things that are only 10 minutes long and they're just uh, they're yeah. just the same every week andrew norris writes a lot of books still and there's like I say he's got this whole website he's sort of got stuff he, he I don't think he does it anymore, but he used to do like little tours to schools and he'd give talks to schools and stuff like that because they yes. knew his books. And he seems to live a really sort of quiet, retired country life. Like he lives out in the country. I don't know this for sure, but I, I feel like he's on the parish council. <laughs> he probably goes and watches the local cricket team uh, and sits there on a deck chair watching them. It really <laughs> exactly got that vibe. Vehemently opposed to new house building. <laughs> <laughs> yes, probably. But yeah, seems like a lovely sort of quiet man. Sort of person who would you would expect to be a vicar. That's that's the vibe I'm getting from <laughs> Andrew Norris. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So those are the writers. They yeah, the British Empire is probably what they're going to be remembered for. Uh, all said and done, and I'm sure we'll look at that one day. Yeah, well, I'm sure we will one day. Yeah. yeah. One day I will bring myself to be able to watch the whole thing. I tell you what I'd like to do before we finish. I want to talk about the how this series ends. I said right at the beginning that this is not a sitcom insofar as it's not a resetting sitcom. There's an ongoing plot between our two main characters and also with the peripheral characters. And mm. in the final episode, you know, they finally get married. I'm not going to do a whole review of that final episode, but mm. there's a quite amusing opening scene. Bill Pertwee, as our police mm. sergeant, starts. He's, he's doing a briefing to the police constables. And it's an absolute textbook example of tell don't show (laughs) he absolutely lays out all the strands of the plot that are about to happen not to be confused with item 15 jack the vicar new to our patch now word is that he poses as a member of the clergy addresses the wi or similar and reduces the old dears to sobs with pictures of orphan kiddies and while they're out of the room pledging large sums of money to oxfam he robs her handbags. The problem is that it lays them out and then they don't get paid off until 20 minutes later. You've totally forgotten because it's just a one-line Man sort alive. of setup that so he threw out. So this is what I wrote down. Bullet points. Wedding. Vicars and Tarts party. Vice raid. Fraudulent vicar. For God's sake, I could wrote the, write the whole episode for myself. <laughs> you probably do a better job. Here's well. the twist. I, I would have been wrong because you've got all the strands there all laid out perfectly and it, they never tie them together. They just <laughs> let them dangle in the wind. This last episode is really, really badly written. I also, by the way, Bill Pertwee in that scene, a textbook example of right, reading <laughs> the, the, the lines off something in the distance. His oh, eyes are definitely off. That. Yeah, his eyes are uh, looking too far down for something for me. <laughs> well, the other notable thing about this episode is that Stephen Fry's in it. Oh, sorry. I said Vickers and Tarts party, wedding, fraudulent vicar, vice raid. I didn't mention there's also a general synod happening. So loads of vicars in town for a synod. <laughs> I, I didn't write that down, sorry, but that was another plot strand. <laughs> and one of those vicars is Stephen Fry. And again, I've written down here, Stephen Fry is so obviously the fraudulent vicar, he's going to end up marry them, marrying them. <laughs> and now, I, I, spoiler alert, that is not what happens. No. But that is so obviously what is being set up here. It would and would have worked much better. It would have tied together better. The ending would have made more sense. So basically, the way it ends is that it turns out the fraudulent vicar did marry them. And we we're left with oh, here's here's the mugshot of the vicar of the fraudulent vicar, and it's the guy that married them. But I wasn't sure because I don't remember the guy that married them because we hadn't really seen him. No, what we'd seen was loads of Stephen Fry. So here is my theory, Alan. My theory is that Stephen Fry was supposed to be the fraudulent vicar and marry them, but they only had him for one day. <laughs> and when they came to film the scenes at the church, he wasn't available because all those group photographs, he's not in them. 
And I think they just had to use another guy and they rewrote the ending and it is very, very poor. It's a very poor ending, yes. To say it's the ending of the whole show and series It's really poor. I like your thinking there because I was just going to say, oh, what crap writing. But yeah, maybe it was forced onto them. And another note that they I got through the commentary was that they they overwrote the episodes all the time. And so oh. then they would go, oh, we'll have to cut some bits out. And Michael Mills would just go, no, I'll just take this scene out. Like Michael Mills did not give a toss. He would just take a scene out and just go, yeah, yeah we'll just get rid of that. Because it makes sense, but whatever. Yeah. And so <laughs> I think a lot of things don't make sense <laughs> because of things getting taken out which makes it feel like it's more badly written than it actually is, even though it's not particularly well written anyway. There's a great scene in this last episode with Tom Chance and his penchant for violence. He has a fight mm. with the off-license owner and several vicars. Yeah. Actual fist fight. Well, that's it. The vicars, one of the vicars is particularly aggressive. Uh, Stephen yeah. Fry plays a vicar who is trying to mollify everyone, or, but he's a very liberal kind of forward-thinking Oh, he's vicar, a liberal vicar. Which is very much Stephen Fry's vibe. <laughs> Are we organised? Well, yes, apart from the fact that Cartwright here seems to think he's on one of his rugby club outings. Oh, look, Hopkin. Just because you lost the vote on women's clergy... The way you and your fellow ostriches have managed to keep the church firmly in the 19th century, Cartwright, has nothing whatever to do with the fact that we didn't all acquire our drinking habits in a corporal's mess. What struck me about Stephen Fry's appearance here was just how out of place he felt. It was just like, you're so much better than everything that's going on around you. (laughs) And it's so obvious. You're giving so much to this character just because you've turned up and obviously no one's directed you and you thought, right, what can I do with this? And everyone Mm -hmm. else, like Angus McKay, this means nothing to me except for the money. And that's what you're doing. You just turn up, you do your lines and you go home. So that's the end of Chance in a Million. Now, the last the last thing I, I wanted to talk about before we finish up this episode, we said this is a Channel 4 sitcom, mm. and it was an early Channel 4 sitcom. So Channel 4 launched in 1982. This is 1984. And I thought, well, interesting. We talked in the past about how the BBC was the home of sitcom, and ITV came in and started doing things there. What about Channel 4? What were their early sitcoms? Yeah. So, I did a bit of Googling, and then when we came on this Zoom call to discuss what we were going to talk about, you said you'd done exactly the same thing. (laughs) Yeah. So what I thought we might do is let's do a bit of back and forth. You give me your... I've made a list of sort of first couple of years of Channel 4, my my favourite sitcoms. Oh, well, do that. What I did was I kind of skipped through all the ones I could find and until I was like, oh, I remember that one. And I feel like is more remembered in sort of cultural history. So you give us Well, I've got a couple that I remember and a couple that I don't. So let's start with uh, Who Dares Wins. That was my, that was the one that really leapt out for me. I remember that. I remember enjoying that. So that was, that was Rory McGrath, Jimmy Mulville, Philip Pope. Mm. Um, And and Chelmsford 123 was on there as well, wasn't it? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I mean Chelmsford 123. Chelmsford 123 was okay. the sitcom. Who Dares Wins was a sketch that show. That was a sketch show, by the, yeah. same, the same people. Sorry, my, my mistake. The Birth of Hattrick Productions has given us so much sitcom over it the was. years. We've talked about that recently. So um, one that we talked about before was Man's Best Friends, which was yeah, Fulton, Fulton Mackay vehicle thing after Porridge. Bernard Breslau in that as well. There's also something called Relative Strangers, which I think we've talked about before, because that was a Marks and Grand sitcom. It starred ah, Matthew right, Kelly, yeah. amongst other people. Oh, yes, I remember, yeah. I've got a couple of others. A fairly secret army, which I don't actually remember, but I remember being a thing. That was Jeffrey Palmer. Mm. Well, that one's interesting because, first of all, it's basically a sequel to uh, Reginald Perrin, the character mm. Jeffrey Palmer plays in that, but not in yeah. name for legal reasons, but it's exactly the same character. Yeah. And it's also very notable, Fairly Secret Army, because it was all single camera filming. No no sets, no audience, all out yeah. in the real world. And so no laugh track. 
So it's very sort of unusual for its time in that. Kind of a weird show, not that good, but I have watched it and it's, um, it's yeah, it's an interesting little historical artifact. There are a couple of others here which I wanted to mention, but I don't remember them. There's one called The Lady is a Tramp, which was a Johnny Spate written sitcom. Mm. And it starred, it starred Patricia Hayes and Pat Coombs as, and I'm going to quote from Wikipedia here, bag ladies. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So they were basically two homeless women and much hilarity ensued. I think we did mention that during our um, Till Death Was Dupart conversation. Because it would make sense, but I don't, I, don't remember, I don't remember it. And then another interesting one here, uh, a, a sitcom called No Problem. I don't remember this at all, but it was about a Jamaican-British family in Wilsdon Green. Oh, yeah. I don't remember it at all, but clearly this is Channel 4 trying to make more diverse programs even back yeah. in 1983. It, that stood out to me when I was looking as well, because I had not heard of it, but it's about basically this black couple decide to retire to Jamaica. They live in London. They decide to retire to Jamaica, leaving their adult children behind. And so it's like now unfettered by your older generation with their ways. We are yeah. now free to be uh, sort of second generation immigrants in Britain. Yeah, exactly. So Channel 4 80s of like, yes, let's actually mm. put non-white people into shows. What a, yeah, what a concept. Yeah, I'd never heard of that, but it looks fascinating, doesn't it? But that takes me to my point because I was skimming through all these going like, okay, if I was going to show these to your average person of, say, 40 years old, what would stand out? What would they go, oh, yeah, I remember that. And for me, the first one that I think people in general would remember was Desmond's. So what year was that? When, what year did that come out? 1989 it began. See, that's seven years after Channel 4 started. And then in 1990, the next one was Drop the Dead Donkey. Oh, yeah. Well, the other interesting thing was, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to say when I did my research, what I did was I looked at a Wikipedia page of Channel 4 sitcoms. And mm. the other thing that was notable, which is obvious in hindsight, is there were, they had a lot of American imports. They had Cheers and those sorts of things, you know, yeah. Roseanne and Golden Girls, those Friday mm. night things. I remember watching that as a kid. Yeah. I mean, I remember those. And obviously that's outside of what we talk about, but clearly they had that commitment to bringing in comedy from around the world. They had some Australian show. They had a Paul Hogan show, which was more sketch, but, but you know, they, they, wanted to bring in comedy from around the world as well. And I think that probably influenced British sitcom writers to some extent as well. Mm -hmm. Also, not really a sitcom, but the comic strip presents, that was very much an early Channel 4 yeah. comedy venture. It does seem odd that it took so long for Channel 4 to really hit, you know, something that ran for more than two series. I think Chance mm. in a Million was probably the <laughs> biggest success of the first five years in terms of yeah. original sitcoms. I think having looked at that list and made that list probably the most influential thing that Channel 4 did was importing those American sitcoms. Yeah. And no one else yeah. was showing those. Okay. So Chance in a Million. Well, it's thumbs down, isn't it? We, we haven't really slagged it off that much because it's just crap. And it's not even like, oh, look how bad this is. It's just all around very weak. I feel I've slagged it off quite a lot. Oh, good. That's okay. It is really, really poor, though. It's very, it's badly written, made. I think Brenda Blethyn comes out pretty well. Uh, I'm all right with Simon Callow, albeit it's a big performance. I'm not really blaming the actors. I don't like the characters particularly. Yeah, yeah. Like, I like Brenda Blethyn, but Alison just, she's insipid and gets on my nerves. Yeah. And, uh, Tom Chance really irritates me. I, I, and, and, you know, if you've got your two main characters that are annoying, it's kind of difficult to get past yeah. that. And this is not a good enough show to get you past it. Yeah, and it's not well written enough to make that work. Yeah. I am trepidatiously curious to watch The British Empire again. Uh, I yeah. I haven't watched it since I was a kid and it was on, you know, but my memories of it are not good and little odd clips I've watched are not winning me over. But Well, I was a classic Red Dwarf fan who watched The British Empire and was yeah. very disappointed. Like that was yeah. the, That was my entry point. 
Chance in a Million, one of our more obscure ones, but we we haven't actually mentioned. It was uh, the the audience response uh, responsible for giving us this show. <laughs> Bugger me, I'd forgotten that. We should have made more of a deal about that, shouldn't we? We put it out to tender. <laughs> yes, thank you to our loyal listeners who voted in our poll, which I'd totally <laughs> forgotten about. <laughs> But I quite like the idea of, um, like, not just kind of going, who want, what do you want? But giving a few options and kind of going, look, this is a sort of vibe. Mm-hmm. We're trying to fill a slot here. We wanted something yeah, we gave some here that was 80s. We wanted something sitcoms. that was a bit more obscure, I think. Um, yeah. So we, we deliberately picked some out. But I quite like the idea of other people having a bit of a say. Just not too much of a say. Democracy within limits. <laughs> the, the illusion of democracy. Exactly, yes. But that was on Twitter, right? So how do they follow us on Twitter? Do you know what? We are still on Twitter at the time of recording, but I am not sure I'm going to survive the changes to Twitter. This is not like an ethical thing. I don't care about Elon Musk. What I care about is the fact that the number of interactions we're getting is just like, it's about a quarter of what it used to be just because of the way the algorithms changed. I'm not sure it's worth it, but for the time being, you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at BritcomPod. Or if you go on Facebook, we've got the British Sitcom History Podcast. That's our page. You just put that into the search bar, you'll find us. Well, I think we've rinsed all the joy out of uh, Chanting a Million. Yeah. Nah, do you know what? I've enjoyed our... I, as always, I enjoy talking about these sitcoms, even when I don't necessarily enjoy the three weeks of watching them. But next week, we've got something we're definitely going to get into. Something we're both big fans of. We're going to revisit Red Dwarf. So yes. our loyal listeners, and there aren't any other type... Our loyal listeners will remember we did series one and two of Red Dwarf and, uh, a couple of years ago. So we're going to return to Red Dwarf and do series three to six, which you call... The Glory Years. The Glory <laughs> the Years. years. So Alan's somewhat, Alan somewhat <laughs> tipping his hand there. Um, I think we're probably going to be a bit more positive than we've been today. Uh, but yeah. I am really looking forward to watching series three to six of Red Dwarf. Which, uh, yeah, it would be my Glory Years as well, the, 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 the years I remember most fondly. Really looking forward to that. All right, we will be back next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye.